0: Well, this is the second sermon in our summer series called Astonishing Jesus, and we are looking at different aspects of who Christ is, his character, his personality, all the things that made him so amazing. And last week we explored the compassion of Jesus. This week we are going to explore the toughness of Jesus. And that may strike you as odd a little bit. You may think, Darren, I haven't maybe thought of Jesus in that way as, as being tough. Are you saying Jesus was like a mixed martial arts fighter or a bruising NHL defenseman? No, I'm not saying that so much as the toughness of his character, the toughness of his sincerity and his commitment. But first, I want to tell you about a guy named Dr. Clarence Bass. He had a long distinguished career at Bethel Theological Seminary in the United States. 33 years he was a full professor and uh, 98 years old. He just passed away this past year, an amazing uh, incredible guy who left a long legacy. But he has a great story of when he very first started out. He had just completed his education and there was a church in Los Angeles that invited him to come and speak. And so he came and preached that morning and he, he preached as best as he knew how. He really gave it his all. And at the end, uh, people were in the auditorium. And they were walking out, or he was standing at the door and shaking people's hands. And lots of positive comments. Good job there, Mr. Bass. Thank you, Dr. Bass. You did a great job today. I really enjoyed the sermon. All these positive comments until this one little old man comes up and says, uh, you preach too long. He was a little bit taken aback, but he's like, oh, well, thank you for the feedback. And uh, he thought, you know what, everyone else seems to have liked it. Lots of positive comments, so no problem. And people kept coming through the line, and he's chatting, shaking people's hands, lots of good comments. All of a sudden, again, you used too many big words. And it was the same old man. He's like, what? This is weird. He he went through the line, got back in, and, and he's back again. And uh, he thought, well, that's a bit odd, but okay. So again, he was kind of kind and whatever. And the guy leaves, and it happened a third time. <laughs> you used too many big words. And he goes, okay, this calls for some explanation. So he saw one of the church deacons or, or leaders over on the side, and he thought, okay, I'm going to go ask. So he kind of goes over and he says, D- do you see the older man there? Uh, what is, what's kind of the story? What's going on with him? And he said, oh, He said, don't pay any attention to that old guy. All he does is go around and repeat everything he hears. It's kind of true, isn't it? We are happy to talk about someone else behind their back, but we don't want to say it to their face. We'd, We'd rather complain about a situation than actually speak the truth in love. But that is not Jesus. In our passage today, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And for the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry, they had challenged him. They had attempted to undermine him, oppose him. At points, they even tried to trap him. And in Matthew 23, our passage today, It all comes to a head, like a classic Western. This is the shootout at the OK Corral. How will it all play out? Well, if you have your print Bible, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 23. The verses will be on the screen as well. And we're going to read about the showdown. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Then they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift one finger to, to move them. Everything they do is for, done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's important to read Jesus' words carefully. He isn't saying that these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, are all bad or they have no value at all. In fact, he says... They're the interpreters of God's law, the first five books of the Bible. They have a role. And as long as they stick to that, people should be listening to them and absorbing what they say. But the problem arises in what they had come to do. They were insisting that all Jews, and especially even people who had come from other places and converted to the Jewish faith, must totally observe the smallest, tiny details of the law. And they also were picking one law and and saying that applied to every area of life. And then they were even making up new laws to add to the burden when they had no authority to do that. Jesus says ultimately these guys have have become not the guides, but the oppressors of the people. Jesus can't stand to see people in bondage over and over and over whether it's someone who is an actual slave, a slave to an addiction, in bondage to evil spirits, or simply slaves to sin, Jesus can't stand it. And his entire ministry is about bringing freedom and release. In fact, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's invited into the synagogue and he's asked to read. And he picks up the scroll of Isaiah. And he quotes this amazing prophecy. He reads it out. It's captured in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down the eyes of Everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was all about being, bringing freedom and release. And here's the Pharisees' teachers of the law doing the exact opposite. They're laying these heavy burdens on people. They're binding them up. The second thing to notice is that not all of the Pharisees and teachers of the law we were so self-righteous and legalistic. In the four gospel accounts, we actually meet some good characters like Nicodemus. They were sincere spiritual searchers coming to Jesus, wanting to know and learn. All right, now we got kind of the setting. Now we can hear Jesus' words properly. And Jesus does not hold back. He makes it extremely clear where these teachers and these Pharisees have gone off track. And he lays it out in big categories. Number one, hypocrisy. Telling everyone else what to do and then either not doing it yourself or doing the opposite. You can see the picture on the slide there. That's actually an ancient Greek mask that actors in plays would wear. And those actors, when they put that mask on, were called hypocrites. And you can see where we get our English word hypocrisy from an actor who is pretending to be someone else. The Pharisees and teachers of law tragically had become this over time. They'd really descended to the level of hypocrisy. In their desire to keep the law, they would go after anyone who they saw breaking the tiniest little rule. An example is the Sabbath. For Jewish people, the sacred day is Saturday, the Sabbath. And the idea was not to do work, but to worship and to rest. But they had turned it into this legalistic policing checklist. If someone was walking through the yard and a shovel was lying on the path and they just picked it up to move it out of the way, they would say, see, you're working, you're working. And they were right there. It was ridiculous. And Jesus points out that they say those things, they police others, but they themselves wouldn't do that oxen in the first century were so valuable they pulled your plows did your farming did all kinds of work and jesus says right to the pharisees says if one of your animals one of your oxen fall into a hole or a ditch and it was the sabbath you would rescue it you would get it out because it's so valuable they were really being hypocritical number two image it was all about looking the part trying to be holy and amazing and for all the people. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at the banquets, the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. Right away, you're thinking, okay, Darren, that sounds all good, but what's a phylactery? And what's the deal with the tassels? What on earth are we talking about? Well, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the fifth book of the Bible, God told the brand new nation of Israel that he had rescued out of slavery in Egypt. This is what he said. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And then verse 8, here it comes. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now, I would take that as metaphor. Tie them as symbols on your hands. What are your hands? They're the ones that do the work. Honor God with your actions and bind them on your foreheads. Put it into your mind. Put it into your heart. Memorize it. Those kind of things. But these guys took it as a literal command. So they made these little leather boxes called phylacteries, and they put scripture verses on them, and they literally tied them on their foreheads and on their arms. Now, the problem was, most average first century working Jewish people, if you're headed off to work in the carpenter shop or the, the farm or wherever, they weren't wearing these things. They were awkward, they were cumbersome, they were hot, all those kind of things. They would probably wear them on the Sabbath, the men might, but the Pharisees wore these all the time and they made a big show of it so everyone could see how holy they were. And then the tassels, what is that about? Well, in another book of the Bible, Numbers 15, it says this, the Lord God said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels, on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at so you will remember all the commands of the Lord that you may not that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. So a really good intention, a visible symbol that would remind people to be faithful, to love God in their words and in their actions. But what started out as a good personal reminder has become a public holier-than-thou show. Well, Jesus calls these guys out on their behavior. Now, you and I don't go around with boxes on our heads or tassels on our robes, but anytime we catch ourselves trying to impress each other with how holy and amazing we are, we know we are headed down a bad road. Now, you need to hear this out loud. Jesus is not against a physical symbol or reminder. A physical object can be really helpful in our spiritual journey. My wife and I, Lori, when we got married uh, back in the year 2000, we just had our 21st anniversary this week. And uh, so, well, thank you, thank you, thank you. Mostly credit goes to her. Um, it, <laughs> <laughs> we know. Uh, my cousin Wilf had just started gold mining up in the Yukon. He'd got a claim and he was all this equipment, he was gold mining. So, for our wedding gift, he gave us a raw gold nugget. It was a pretty amazing. I loved looking at it. It was just so raw and it's just straight out of the ground. And so, we had it locked up in a little safe in our house. Uh, for the first year and a half of our marriage. And then I was driving around in Victoria, uh, in Oak Bay, and I happened to hear on the radio about the jeweler there, Oak Bay Jewelers, and they had just hired a brand new goldsmith. And I thought, you know what? That's amazing. I have that gold nugget at home. I think I'm going to take it into them. And so I found this beautiful design of a dove, and I took the gold nugget in, talked to the jeweler. He got all excited about it and they melted it down, purified it. And then they put some other metals with it because gold's quite soft. So they got to give it a little stiffness. And then he did the perfect shape of the dove. He gave it an eye, all this kind of stuff. And I uh, gave it to Lori for our second anniversary. Here's a picture of it. And, uh, yeah, it turned out really amazing. And, uh, Lori's wore it for the last 21 years. And it's been an amazing reminder to her every time she looks at it, sees it in the mirror, she's conscious of the presence of the Holy Spirit in her life. So, but that's kind of the point. These Pharisees, these teachers of the law, weren't looking at these tassels on the robes or the phylactery boxes. They weren't looking at these physical symbols as a reminder to be faithful, to love God. They were doing it, a show to be noticed by other people a lot of people wear a cross necklace that's really great and if when you look at that it reminds you of what Christ has done for you that's awesome I can encourage all of us wear a cross necklace that's great now where it would be weird is if you made it like a foot tall covered it in gold plating and put bling diamonds all over it and then you just went around telling everyone how amazing and holy you were that would be missing the point so these are broad categories. Jesus standing up, confronting these Pharisees. He teaches the law, which brings us to a fascinating point. All four accounts tell us the same picture of Jesus in this aspect. Every time Jesus met someone who was a, a tax collector, a drunk, a thief, a prostitute, Jesus never belittled them, he didn't talk down to them, he encountered them. He penetrated right into their core. He looked through their eyes and challenged them to give up the sin that was destroying their life and come and follow Him. The only group of people that Jesus got mad at were the ones who were extremely proud of their religiosity. Looked down on others. The only group Jesus got in the face of were the rule-obsessed religious types who told everyone else what to do but didn't do it themselves. You know, that should give us pause. That bears thinking about. At many, many points in the last 2,000 years of church history, tragically, the Christian church has looked a little bit more like Pharisees than we have looked like Jesus. I heard a heartbreaking story From the parents of a young woman who in her late twenties got a job working in a church. She was very talented with music and singing. She had a passion for for youth and, and seeing young people get to know Christ and grow and blossom. And after about a year at the church, she approached leadership, said, I have this idea to run like a big musical. What do you think? And they all said, Yeah, sounds great, that's awesome. And so they supported her, and she got this amazing musical, and it was great Christian songs and lyrics and all this kind of stuff. And she's working with, this youth, with the youth of the church, and they're bonding together. These lyrics are being memorized, staying in the kids' heads. Lots of good things are happening. And then finally, it got closer and closer to the time when it's going to be the big debut and the performances And they sat down and said, we need to talk about costumes. This whole thing has a Wild West theme. So clearly the people that kind of have an acting or speaking role can be in Wild West costumes. So what what about our big choir? What should we get them to do? And they finally decided, well, we're going to kind of go Western. We'll go cowboy boots and jeans and maybe hats. And uh, so everyone seemed to think it was great. It was all good. And so they're going along. And all of a sudden, this one father comes in and demands to see this young woman who's the music director and he just tears a strip off her he said that is so wrong that is so evil that you're not going to have my daughter in the choir in a dress she's going to be in jeans and the lady was kind of taken aback she's like oh i didn't even think that would be a problem but let me tell you like here's the costume here's what we've designed like These are not killer skin-tight jeans. We're not trying to make the girls look in any way kind of sexually provocative or anything. It's just, it's all really classy. And she tried to be really kind to this guy. He wanted nothing of it. He created this massive ruckus, took it all the way to the kind of the church denominational heads of the province, ended up getting her fired over it. Makes me so angry when I think about it. And you know what happened? Four years later, it came out, this father had a massive addiction to pornography. He hypocritically had taken all of his own sin and junk and evil and projected it onto someone else. That guy probably would have been in good company with some of the worst of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And what Jesus condemned them them is still a temptation for anyone who claims to follow Jesus. May we as a church, myself included, never be that kind of church where we just we care more about justifying ourselves and our own image than we do about proclaiming the good news of the gospel in the words and actions. Now the facet of Jesus' character that we're talking about today is his toughness. Not his physical toughness, although... I actually think some of the weird movie portrayals of Jesus, where he looks super wimpy, super pasty white, like he's never even been outdoors, I don't think that's really accurate. If you think about it, Jesus walked up and down the country of Israel for three and a half solid years, multiple times with his disciples. He would have been tanned, he would have been outdoors all the time. And up to age 30, he worked in his dad's carpenter shop and they didn't have power tools. So there's no way that Jesus was a physical wimp. But What we're really talking about today is the toughness of his courage, character to challenge injustice and wrongdoing, especially when it was being used to oppress other people. Well, Jesus goes from these broad categories to getting really specific in this next section. He levels seven specific charges against the Pharisees and religious leaders. We're going to pick it up in verse 13. It says woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees you hypocrites you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces you yourselves do not enter nor will you let those enter who are trying to woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees you hypocrites you travel over land and sea to win a single convert and when you have succeeded you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are woe to you blind guides Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former you blind guides you strain out a gnat but you swallow a camel woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you clean the outside of the cup and dish but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence blind pharisees first clear the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside will be clean also woe to you teaches the law and Pharisees you hypocrites you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean in the same way on the outside you appear to people as righteous but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. You say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. It's quite a passage. And people have been just blindsided by it and thought how in the world can i reconcile jesus saying these incredibly offensive harsh things to this these group of of teachers and pharisees how do we balance that out because everything we know about jesus he's compassionate he's loving he's kind he's amazing he's forgiving how at the same time can jesus be so confrontational And honestly, I puzzled over that. For a long time, I've read that passage over and over. How can you bring those two together? And then I came across a book. It's called In the Footsteps of Jesus, written by this guy, Bruce Marciano. And Bruce got to play the part of Jesus in the movie adaption called the Matthew series. And they took the book of Matthew and filmed it. It's an amazing series. Up until the latest one, The Chosen, that everyone's watching is amazing. I think up until now, he was my favorite portrayal of Jesus. And as I read this book, it's an amazing account, the way they filmed it, all the things that happened, just miracle after miracle. Finally, it came to the point where they are filming this scene in Matthew 23. And Bruce himself was really struggling with how can i bring this together how can i portray jesus who who has so much joy so much life so much compassion so much forgiveness and be at the same time so tough so confrontational so seemingly harsh in this chapter and he talks about the day that they were set to film it and he had worked so hard he had memorized all of the lines and then the cameras get rolling, and he gets up there to perform it, and he goes, "Is like my mind just went completely blank. He goes, it was so embarrassing. All the film crew, the actors, everyone's there, and I can't remember a single thing. And so the director calls cut, and he says, okay, everyone, like, we're going to take a two-hour break. Go have some food, rest. You know, Bruce, go recoup, go over your lines. We'll, we'll try again in two hours. And so Bruce did what he was told. He's eating, he's he's relaxing but he is praying like a wild man. He's like, Lord, I, I don't know what is wrong with me. How come I can't do this? And he's like, Lord, you are going to have to show me how to portray you accurately because I don't want to mess this up. And after a couple hours of praying and everything, the, the assistants came and got him and said, Bruce, it's time for the scene. And he gets up there. And he said it was the most amazing miracle of his life. He said he stood on stage and he uttered those first words, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And he says that moment the Holy Spirit of God just took over in his life. He said the only thing he could kind of explain it was to think of when you go to the ocean and you're down in the waves and a huge one picks you up, tumbles you over and throws you onto the beach. He goes that's what it was like for that entire scene. The Holy Spirit just took over and was in complete control. He later wrote, he got to view it with the director in the editing room. He said he couldn't believe his eyes. He was just so broken in the deepest possible place of his spirit and soul at the love of Christ. And this is the quote. This changed my whole understanding of Matthew 23. He said, the Lord wasn't spitting fire at these guys. He was loving them. His rage was not a self-righteous, now you've had it. It was the rage one experiences watching someone you love walk out the door. It was a rage born of a broken heart. It was Jesus' last ditch effort to gain them. Desperately holding a mirror to their faces. Passionate heart crying for them. Having done everything he could to make them see and understand. I am he and I love you don't do what you're doing, come to me. How Jesus treasured him, treasured them. How he wept over their self-destruction, the broken heart of Jesus, so much deeper than any of us can imagine. Now we get it. That is why Jesus was so confrontational, so tough with these guys. And that's why this aspect of Jesus' character is so important. Think about it. What kind of Savior... Do you want, when you are up against it in life, when all the forces of sin and evil and death are coming down on you, do you want a wimpy putz of a Savior that runs away at the first time of trouble? No. You want a Savior of such toughness of character, such toughness of will, that He will stop at nothing to try and save us. Whether we're lost in sin and self-destructive behavior, or lost in our religiosity and our holier-than-thou attitudes. And the actual chapter ends like this, showing us the heart of Jesus. Verse 37 to 39. Jesus stands up, he looks over, and he says, "'Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing.'" Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, you know, when, when I was working on this sermon this week, I thought, man, this is an aspect of my character that I feel like God is still working on me. He's still developing in me. Because there are people and moments in my life when I know I should, in love, confront someone. But it is so hard, so difficult, and oftentimes I shy away. I think this, cha- this passage challenges us to do two things in response today. If we have something in our own lives that is destroying us, we need to let Jesus confront us on it and say yes to Him and no to whatever thing is destroying us. Maybe we have an alcohol, drug, pornography, addiction... We want Jesus in love to come in and be tough with us. And we need to say yes to him. Number 2, maybe if you have friends, families, neighbors, coworkers that don't have a clear picture of who Jesus really is, I want us to explain it to them. Show them the full character of Jesus, absolutely totally compassionate, loving and forgiving and also tough as nails. His heart breaks for this lost and broken and messed up world. And all he asks is that we understand his heart and display it to those around of us. Amen.